This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Aquinas Wealth Advisors, powered by Morales Technologies. To find out how you can have better visibility and total control over the ethics of your own investments, visit www.aquinaswealth.com or call 833-730-3700 to align your faith and your finances. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed is still, you know, I am back uh, in my home studio after spending, uh, after after making our last, was it our last episode that was our live show, Ed? It was. Yeah, after our, our really awesome live show, I am back, you know, in my home studio, so to speak. But Ed, you are still, from the looks of things, on um, location. Uh, I I really haven't stopped traveling or drinking since the live show, JD. If I'm honest with you, uh, I, I'm not I'm not anywhere nearly as comfortable as I was when last we spoke. But you know, I'm I'm still on the road and and making it work from where I am. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of invitations after last week. Like there to are do a lot live of shows who, in other places. Yeah, I think we're going to need to end up having some kind of dive bar tour of the great Catholic yeah, cities gonna, of this we're country. Gonna, we're going to hit the road. What we have to do is, um, what we have to do because I, yeah, we're, we're going to hit the road. We, we're we're planning some other live shows, and the number one thing that we're going to do is um, make better live shows. So I think our first, uh, our first sort of uh, romp out of the gate, we learned a lot about how to make a live show and how not to make a live show. I was overstimulated by the crowd. You were understimulated by the crowd. You sort of fell into some sort of deep existential morass that I don't understand. Uh, we didn't do a sufficient job sort of broadcasting the uh, the sound to the people who had very kindly come out to listen to us. So we we learned a lot, technically, personally, spiritually. Um, I'd say uh, we, uh, we will be better, uh, don't you think? Yes, it, it was a, it was a, it was an opportunity for growth, JD. And really, there was no better community in which to learn the lessons that we learned than the great people of Saint Paul. Yeah, it was it was good. Okay, so uh, so yeah, I have been getting a lot of invitations too. I think it will be fun for us to make some more live shows. And um, if you think that we should make a live episode of the Pillar Podcast where you live or move or have your being, just uh, reach out to us and give us a pitch for why we should uh, should make an episode from a sweet sweet watering hole in your neck of the woods. I am what I'm doing now is <laughs> just looking at me. What I'm doing now is uh is uh just, you know, something I don't do on the podcast often enough, but I'm working on just closing my mouth and letting you pick up the ball. Oh, I see. You're still you're still in you're still in self-reflection mode after St. Paul. I'm just acutely conscious of my <laughs> tendency to talk too much and i'm trying you you know i want to be I, good and generous there was a lot of adrenaline going for you there last was, week there was. i think everyone understands that you were having a good time the crowd was having a good time we had a good time i think everyone understands that i'm feeling uh, i'll be honest with you uh even even more reflective and desperate for silence than i normally am right now because i am um i'm in an undisclosed location with my entire family and and it's currently 31 people per bathroom where I am, wow. and uh, so so privacy is is hard to come by, and I'm I'm currently recording this uh, in my car because it is the only space uh, that I I can be sure will have some some reasonable solitude to it. So I I'm in a reflective mood. Uh, so I and you haven't had the time the when ball. when the when the house is 31 people to a bathroom, you haven't had a time for your ordinary mode of um, commode self reflection, and uh, and so you I suppose you have to sort of do a little bit of that. 
um, quiet contemplation time right here on our on our show. Uh, yes, I, I will try and keep that to a minimum, though, and I apologize if I'm not if I'm not returning serve quite as fast as I I should be. No, that's totally fine. And um, but I do want to talk, um, Ed, because I am I'm bummed. Um, I had an idea this week. Uh, I've had an idea for a while, and I wrote about it this week. And basically, nobody agrees with me. And uh, there's a lot of news that we want to talk about. But first, I want to talk about my very good idea, uh, and uh, and talk about why nobody agrees with me. But I wrote this week an analysis about the notion of um, of the the office or ministry of preacher. And uh, I put sort of out there the idea that the Holy Father might, you know, a, as the Holy Father has done, expanding. Um, the ministry of lector and acolyte in the church, which are ministry, liturgical ministries that are open to lay people, um, and kind of buoying, bolstering, and strengthening the office or ministry of catechist in the church, which is, um, y- you know, a function in the life of the church, which is now to have a sort of liturgical right of commissioning and some stability in office, especially in places where catechists exercise real immediate practical care for, for Christian communities in the absence of a priest. I pose that the, the church very well might, the Holy Father or diocesan bishops for that matter, very well might consider uh, the notion of the ministry of, of preacher, that, um, that there are people who are not clerics, do not have holy orders, um, are not qualified to preach in the context of holy mass. I do not think that anyone should preach uh, in the context of holy mass, preach a homily or a sermon or homilet or something like that in the context of holy mass, because only a person with holy orders is qualified to do the liturgical act of the homily. But there are lots of other kinds of preaching in the context of the Christian tradition and the history of the Church. And there are lay people who we know—I'm not one of them—but there are lay people who we know who are actually gifted as, um, as preachers of the Word of God. Um, and there are also people who we know of who are kind of hucksters, who put themselves out as preachers of the Word of God and go and speak at a lot of events and, and, um, and char- often charge exorbitant speaking fees and, um, and are not especially gifted or um, especially sort of formed towards the salvation of souls. And I or have wondered— Or especially ordered towards preaching about the gospel rather than just giving their thinly veiled political views. Their thinly veiled political views or their sort of warmed over self-help. And I have wondered if— sort of establishing kind of a ministry of a, uh, for, for people gifted as lay preachers in the church couldn't be of real benefit to the people of God. But everybody seems to think I'm nuts about this. Well, I, I'm surprised to hear that because I, when you pitched this idea, I, I thought it was a great one. I thought this is right up Francis's alley. This is the kind of stuff he likes to, you know, likes to tinker with, likes to do, likes to establish more firmly. We know that um, although Pope Francis likes to likes to offer canonists a gentle ribbing about rigid doctors of the law. There is no more active legislator in the in the recent annals of the papacy than himself. So Pope Francis clearly likes a good bit of law. Uh, he likes to he likes to legislate. And I thought this was a, a great idea you had. I and I don't really under, I confess. I mean, you told me just before we started recording that nobody thought this was a good idea, and I was surprised to hear that. What what are the arguments against it? Because to me, it seems intuitive. If preaching the word of God is and the church does say it is an important function. If it is, you know, a, a stable part of the church's tradition in life, if it does have a, a real place in in Christian ministry, why the heck wouldn't we want people to be well formed to perform that function? What's the argument against it? Well, here's what I've heard from people. So, what I sort of proposed is the idea that um, lay people who are gifted, who are formed correctly, who are gifted with some capacity for preaching, charismatic preaching, or expository preaching, exegetical preaching for that matter, might be sort of vetted and screened um, and commissioned in a certain way um, to occupy a kind of diocesan or parish office of preacher by which they might be sort of approved for speaking at, you know, 
conferences and retreats and parish missions and things like that, but also that, that it might even be possible that a local church might sort of take advantage of the idea that there's a person who's sort of wholly dedicated to preaching. Again, not in the context of the Mass, because preaching a homily is a liturgical act, which requires holy orders. You and I are not sort of qualified um, or capable of preaching a homily because we, we, we're not ordained. Um, go ahead, you'd like to quibble. I'd like to quibble. Uh, this isn't a question of uh, hobbles or capex. It is true that the homily is reserved solely to the clergy, that is, the deacon, the priest, or, or the bishop. Um, and that is a matter of law, although it's my understanding that this is, a, this is an institution of the church. This is positive law. This isn't, um, it doesn't require a divine ontological configuration through ordination. Well, because there have been lots of places, including, for example, the Australian plenary council, which just concluded last month, where this was one of the things that they were talking about, debating, voting on, and in this case, they voted against it. But one of the one of their action items was they wanted to talk about and vote on the idea of asking Rome for a dispensation from the requirement that only clerics can preach the homily in mass. I don't, again, I don't, I'm not in favor of it. I don't think it's a good idea. I absolutely agree. Preaching a homily is a liturgical act that it's a thing best reserved as the code of canon law, peace be upon it. Uh, says it's best preserved to the presbyter, uh, to the one presiding over the Eucharist, because it provides a unitive function for the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, that the two are linked. That's why we have them in, present in the entire celebration of the Mass. So I'm not, I'm not pushing this idea at all, but I, I would quibble. I don't think that this is a question of you require sacred ordination to be capable of preaching a homily. I think the Church just says we reserve it to the clerics. I, I actually think it's tautological. I think a, a homily, huh. I think a homily is an expository liturgical act of the Word of God exercised by a, a person in, in holy orders. Okay. So I think, I think um, in as much as I know, and I did a little bit of reviewing of some documents from the CDF, but, but a liturgical theologian, a pastoral theologian, an expert in homiletics, or any other damn person who feels like it can and will feel free to sort of um, modify our, our uh, musings on this if, if they will, but in as much as I can tell, I think the homily is... Um, clerical, like the homily qua homily is clerical. And if someone else had permission to preach in the context of the liturgy, it would be by that fact, not a homily. Okay. That's okay. my, yeah. I'm, okay. I'm not saying you nay. I was, I, uh, my familiarity with this goes not really much further than the code. And so I... at, at any rate, um, that's neither here nor there, because what I was pitching was not the idea of lay people preaching during the sacred liturgy of the mass, because I don't think that's appropriate to the thing and neither does the church. Um, but the idea that in the history and tradition and customs of the church are all these other kinds of preaching that have largely fallen by the wayside. Um, that things like preached 40 hours devotions or things like even preached holy hours are, are, are less common, let alone the kind of preached expository and exegetical sermon that um, breaks open the Word of God systematically and, um, and thoroughly um, with recourse to the exegesis of the fathers of the church and other things, and with application to the magisterium of the church and the church's unpacking of revelation. Like, if you read the sermons of someone like um, St. John Henry Newman, I don't, I don't know if you have that big book, um, Parochial and Plain Sermons. It's a great book of, of, of Newmanian sermons. But, but that thing, the sermon, has largely fallen by the wayside, and it's because the church now says that this other thing called the homily, which is a sort of shorter, immediate reflection on the immediate readings, um, but but a sermon can be on a set of on a theme. A, a sermon can be on a sermon can have a much sort of broader application, and generally speaking, tends to be a much longer thing and a much more sort of in, in depth thing, and and doesn't need to be in the liturgy. 
um, or in, in the Holy Sacrifice of Mass. And um, the kinds of sermons that the Church once had as custom in any number of contexts um, have largely fallen by the wayside. But I look at these people who are gifted as preachers. I, I'm friends with this guy named Christophanic, who is a kind of guy who goes around the country and and, and preaches really at these. He's, he's a layman. He's got a family. He's got a beautiful wife. Uh, he, he preaches at these things, and people are moved by his preaching. It's clear to me that he has a charism of preaching, which is not to be expressed in liturgy because he doesn't have sacred orders. But I'd love to see what would happen if the guy did a you know, seven-part sermon series on something at the diocesan cathedral on Sunday afternoons, you know, that, that were, were longer and, and things like that. And I honestly think that the Church has lost the custom uh, of many of her sort of preaching traditions, and the notion that those things could be revived in a new way, you know, in, with the notion that all of us, by virtue of our baptism and, and, um, and confirmation and, and people with formation could do this thing outside of the liturgy, I think could be really quite cool and a new sort of a mode of renewal of the Church. But I think people thought that I was just saying preaching the mass, or I think people thought that I was saying some kind of like liberal thing about like um, some kind of anti-clerical thing or something like that. No, you were talking about a good old-fashioned lay preached revival. Uh, Billy, I want I want more Billy Graham. Like I, I don't want more Billy Grahams, qua Billy Grahams, because I think we've got some of them. I want people who have those gifts to have a sort of stable place, because the people who I know who are in that that universe who are good, it's hard to kind of go around from place to place. It's hard on their family. It's also, um, you know, the, they're become unsavory elements and that sort of thing. But a person who has those kinds of gifts, I'd love to see what, what could happen for a local community. If a person who had those kind of gifts had the opportunity to use it regularly and consistently with the same community. And I don't think that competes with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass or something like that. I actually think it, it uh, you know, it helps us to understand better that Mass is a place where we go f for worship and not strictly speaking, for sort of catechesis or something like this. I also think, though, that people objected because they were thinking, well, if the Church had something like this, then um, the kind of bishops that I don't like would restrict the kind of people that I do like from being able to preach in their dioceses. And maybe that's true. Um, well, they could do I that like... already. I mean, yeah, I like... they... if I... If I... Am I misremembering this? But I feel like you were invited to go to some conference or talk at some college in the not too distant past, and you ended up getting a letter from saying, "Well, they need you need a letter in good standing from your bishop uh, to, before we'll allow you into this diocese to open your mouth." Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's that right. wasn't even for preaching. That was just you were you were going to talk about. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I go to places and give talks, you know, and usually you need to have that kind of thing. And it's true that the bishop in a place where you know who doesn't agree with you could say, "No, we don't want you." you know, giving a talk here or whatever, that that, that already exists. So I don't know. I, I don't think that's the thing. I'm just trying to think out of ways to use the gifts that people have for more renewal in the church and to, to recognize that in the contemporary American experience, evangelicals have become very, very good at preaching. Preaching is, I think, I, I honestly think that there's something to the proclaimed spoken word of God that is oh, absolutely essential to Christian identity that's different from what you know what we do or something and um and i i'm looking for ways in which that can be renewed in the life of the church i guess i i'm all in favor of that kind of renewal um or or can we call it a revival please um, <laughs> you know like what if the eucharistic revival and if anybody who listens to this show has some attachment to the eucharistic revival what if people who what, what the eucharistic revival has commissioned a set of eucharistic preachers clerics whose job will be to go to masses around the country effectively and preach on the Eucharist and the Eucharistic Revival. But what if the Eucharistic Revival out, rolled out a slate of lay Eucharistic preachers who would preach at parish missions or things like that? Some of them 
with the capacity for deep exegetical preaching, some of them with the capacity for sort of intense charismatic preaching. But what if the Eucharistic revival said, yeah, preaching is the kind of thing that a person can have a, care, a, a gift for. Preaching doesn't only exist in the liturgy, and, uh, and we want to encourage that in the life of the church. Wouldn't that be cool? I think it'd be very cool. I, I like the idea. I, again, I was in favor of this idea when you pitched it. I, I was surprised that there was pushback on it. Um, and of course, also the the doctor of the law in me, just I don't like important roles in the church that are ill-defined and unqualified, because in the end, you either get the role being sidelined or you get the role being used either inappropriately or not as it's intended. And that's why I was very cool with Pope Francis saying, no, we need to really do better to to, to regulate and articulate and and more firmly embed the role of catechist. And I thought that was, you know, needed and useful. And I think the same thing about preachers. I think that'd be great. And then also, if you, you had this, then there would be people that you could actually say as a as a proper title rather than just a sort of rude descriptor, oh, they're a lay preacher. And uh, who doesn't want to go see a good lay preacher, preacher revival? Yeah, no, I think that's true. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there are people who think, well, you're kind of the, what you're talking about is clericalizing the laity, right? Because everyone should proclaim the word of God, and everyone should um, should pro, should announce the kingdom, and that is true. Uh, I do think that, but I don't think that it's clericalizing the laity to say the church has a desire to recognize certain gifts and commission and sort of oversee the exercise of certain gifts in order to enable and facilitate sort of odd intra um, certain things which we think are good and yeah. of value and benefit. I absolutely agree with that. So I hope if any bishop thinks this is a good idea. Um, you know, hit us up. If you're a bishop and you listen to the show, you probably know our number because you probably text us to say all the things that we get wrong or what have you. Um, actually, none of the bishops who listen to the show do that. I, I retract that. But if you're a bishop who listens to the show, you probably have our number. So hit us up if you think this is a good idea and we'll help you set it up in your diocese. And, and then you can make JD a lay preacher, which as no, we all know No, I don't want to just... be a lay preacher. I'm not, I'm I know you don't want to be a lay preacher. You want to be a permanent deacon, but this is a good I first I do not step. want to be a permanent deacon, sir. I do not wish to be a permanent deacon, nor do I believe I have the call to be a permanent I'll know I that understand. I have a call and to be a permanent deacon. That kind of personal humility is exactly what qualifies you for the role, JD. <laughs> I'll know that I have a call to be a permanent deacon if the I live in the Archdiocese of Denver. If the Archbishop of Denver rings my doorbell and says, J.D., I have need of you to do this thing and you need diaconal orders for it, then I'll know that oh, I, he wants me I like to it. be... It's, it's not enough that he call you. He has to come to your house himself. <laughs> so that the I can have him in and consider... The apostle has to come to me on bended knee. <laughs> that's so humility. That, so that I can have him in and consider the thing. That's how I'll know that I'm called to be a deacon if someone calls me to be a deacon. I'm going to have a word with your archbishop and see if I can't make that happen. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, this is my idea of the week and, and I think it's a good one. But uh, let's talk about somebody else's ideas or um, certain ideas floating around um, the academy, if you will. Because, Edward, uh, I think we need to talk a little bit about some things that have been coming lately um, out of the, uh, the Pontifical Academy for Life. So um, what is, Ed, the Pontifical Academy for Life and what's happening there right now? Well... The Pontifical Academy for Life is, if you like, a sort of, uh, as the name implies, papally sponsored think tank, qua academic institution, which is charged with looking into and deepening the church's understanding and study of life issues. It is, you know, it is a a meeting place for academics. It is a it is a home that fosters dialogue and research and teaching. 
Um, and there, there are different pontifical academies, if I'm not wrong. And the Pontifical Academy is, uh, for Life is, is just pontifical one of them. Pontifical Academy for Life, Pontifical Academy for Social Sciences, Pontifical Academy for Culture, yeah. I think. It o- is part of – these institutions are how the church – are part of the way in which the church and particularly the, the See of Rome, the Holy See, uh, establishes mechanisms for the church to take part in global intellectual and social dialogue. That, you know, there are – there's a constant conversation, political, academic, social – everything else going on about life issues. And the church has an important message, the important message to contribute to this conversation. And so institutions like the Pontifical Academy for Life are there to help foster the discussion of these issues and then to articulate what the church thinks on these issues. Okay, we're going to play a little game before we move on to what's happening right now at the Pontifical Academy for Life. Ed, can you name three more Pontifical Academies? If you can, I give you a prize. Uh, I will say social sciences. Correct. Uh, there will be some. There will be some version of a pontifical academy for economics, but it will be called something else. Um, integral human development. You're just naming Dicasters now. You want me to tell them to you? Yes, please. The Pontifical Academy of Fine Arts and Letters. The Pontifical, oh. <laughs> the pontifical Academy of Sciences. The Pontifical Academy of Theology. The Pontifical Academy, this is sort of an indie uh, academy, if you will. The Pontifical Academy of Archaeology. See what I Oh, that's there? cool. Yes. <laughs> the Pontifical yes, Academy well of Martyrs. Well, that must be a quiet building. <laughs> You're having fun with this. The Pontifical Academy for Life, the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences, the Pontifical Academy of Mary, and the Pontifical Academy for Latin. Now, there is one more Pontifical Academy, Edward um, and it is, apart from the Blessed Virgin Mary, only one saint has their own pontifical academy. Would you care to guess? Oh, it's going to be the Angelic Doctor, surely. It is indeed the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas, founded in 1879 to promote the study of Thomism. Thomism is an important thing, I agree. That's what they say. Okay, back to it. What's happening at the Pontifical Academy for Life? These well, days, my so friend? the Pontifical Academy for Life, and, and especially its Twitter account, um, have gotten a little punchy in recent weeks. And we've covered a little bit of this. The first time that it sort of went uh, a little bit, I don't want to say rogue, because that would imply that it wasn't officially sanctioned. And of course, this is the sort of quote unquote blue checkmark um, account. So it is by its nature, the the official line of the Academy on these things. But uh, it, it started with the, the Academy put out a, a book, a book. It was a text. It was a collection of contributions to a symposium they'd done last year, um, talking about life issues. And the the academy's official social media account started, you know, sort of amplifying and retweeting and stuff favorable reviews of this book. Um, but then, of course, it being a book and it being a collection of contributions to a symposium, uh, there were divergent views in it. It wasn't necessarily a coherent whole, so much as a you know, a collection of thoughts expressed. Um, it came in for some criticism too, and some people talked about what they didn't like about it. And the academy, the academy's account started sort of getting into random fights with individual Twitter users and stuff, and that was a little weird. But then this week, they started going on about how, well, you know, humani vitae is not not infallible, and it's not irreformable, and it just sort of came out of nowhere, and everyone was left scrambling, saying, "Wait." Why is, of all of the things that you would expect the Pontifical Academy would be for, it would be for amplifying and expounding upon and defending the teaching of Paul VI and Humanae Vitae. And so to have the Pontifical Academy start saying, well, you know, that's up for debate, really, uh, caught a lot of people off guard. 
And no one was really sure what they were trying to say. And there has been this sort of, you know, rumor floated that uh, there's for quite there's some a, time since this book came out, there's been kind of some rumors yeah. floating, right? It's not just a social media generated thing, right? No, no, no. It's been floating around Rome. It's been floating around uh, the academy uh, in the wider sense, not just the Pontifical Academy, um, for some time. That there's there's a move afoot in Rome for a new papal encyclical on sort of quote unquote life issues that would, uh, I get how can I phrase this, kind of amorous Laetitia, humanae vitae, and sort of knock the knock the edges off of some of its more controversial teachings and perhaps contextualize or develop quote unquote the church's perfectly clear explanation on the on the grave and uh, in intrinsic immorality of artificial contraception and so the concern so the idea basically floating around just to make sure i understand the idea basically floating around has been a discussion among some in rome that the holy father might issue a document which sort of says that yes contraception is the use of contraception in, in the nuptial act is intrinsically moral um but at the same time, we need to recognize sort of that not all persons have the same kind of subjective culpability for that. And there are situations which can mitigate subjective culpability. There's been a fear or a concern or a rumor going around that the Holy Father might, in a certain way, qualify all the way to sort of optional uh, humana vitae, as it were. Is that kind of, and, and that rumor has been coming both from people who would be in favor of that idea and people who would take issue with that idea. Is that right? That's right, and yeah, the idea is that it would that the Pope had in mind uh, to to so far relativize the the application of the teachings of Humana Vita that it would become effectively a dead letter, and I mean that if that were to happen, that would be a big deal, and that would rightly cause a lot of concern and raise well, a lot of questions. We talked to a guy this week, a theologian, who said that he was sort of told by the Pontifical Academy for Life that the Holy Father has sort of walked away from that pitch. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, well, so th this was the interesting thing, and this is something that Archbishop Polly, the Academy's president, ha has uh, you know kind of winked at, and he wrote the introduction to this text that generated all of this uh, positive and negative review and all of this discussion, and people kept pointing to that introduction as saying, well, you know, this is this is wink wink what the Pope really thinks, and you know, Archbishop Polly is saying it here, but you know, really, you could just read this is Francis Zellmore, and we talked to a theologian this week who was invited to the symposium and. Uh, he couldn't go for family reasons, but you know, he said he was told by the academy that the original idea was this symposium would produce a text, which could then be sort of molded into something that Francis would put his own name on, as an encyclical or some sort of you know apostolic exhortation or something like that. And the Pope kind of said, mm, "No thanks." And then there was the idea that well, maybe the Pope would write a foreword to this collection and sort of lend it his his seal of uh, of approval, at least as a discussion, if not as a teaching. And as we know, the Pope apparently said no thanks to that too, which is why Archbishop Polly ended up writing it. So there didn't appear to be anything at the bottom of this barrel once you dug down into it. But instead you had um, the Academy, as all of this was sort of coming out, you had the Academy's official account sort of doubling down on, well, you know, who are you to say that Humana Vitae can't change. Who are you being, in this case, you know, someone with sort of three followers on Twitter that it was choosing to engage with? Um, you know, who are you to say that Humana Vitae um, can't be developed? And who are you to say that it can't be reformed because it's not infallibly articulated, which is is both true and nonsense. Um, I mean, what does it mean to say the Humana Vitae? So when the Pontifical Academy for Life, and, and I don't like sort of just talking about things that happen on social media just to talk about them. I think there's their, a point here, right? It's their official mouthpiece. Yeah, it's the their thing. official mouthpiece of... of, of an organ of the church. I mean, I, I don't know whether the Pontifical Academy for Life is a is a um, a public juridic person or not. I don't think it sort of speaks in nomine ecclesia as such. 
but it, but it, it is, is well, nevertheless it's in Predicati Evangelium. It is a, it is a department of the Roman Curia. Right, exactly. So and it sort of says things that are confusing, or when see, when it seems to be saying things that are troubling, I, I think that is a big deal, regardless of where it says it. But w- what does it mean to say that Humana Vitae is in, is not infallible? I mean. Well, so this is the this is kind of the thing that, as I said, is makes the statement both true and nonsense at the same time. Um, you know, the Pope obviously has the the authority and the capacity to speak ex cathedra and define infallibly um, when speaking on matters of faith and morals in in a particularly specific way. And this is you know not something that happens very often. Um, in fact, it happens extremely rarely, and it's almost exclusively reserved for the articulation of dogmatic revelation. So, for example, the Immaculate Conception, uh, things like that. And, you know, Humana Vitae is, in a, is a papal encyclical. It's part of the ordinary magisterium of the church. And it, it was not, you know, written in the form of an infallible pronouncement ex cathedra from the Bishop of Rome. That is true. But to have done so would have been weird. And not to have done so doesn't mean that it's any more open to quote-unquote, reform. Right. A document can be an expression of the ordinary magisterium and contain within it expressions of the extraordinary magisterium or the church's perennial teaching, which require assent, which are which are normatively true. Which are just true. fundamentally true. They can be right. credited which teachings. Be they can be tenenda yeah. teachings. Right. Yeah. And and we talked to a couple of theologians this week, and um, you know we, we wrote up what they said about all this. But I mean, what it boils down to is this, and, and St. Paul VI says this in Humanae Vitae, St. John Paul II says this about Humanae Vitae, and Pope Francis has recognized this in his own writings about Humanae Vitae, which is, it's not a question of Paul VI saying, I've had a revelation, and this is an infallible teaching on condoms, that what what the Church teaches in Humanae Vitae about artificial contraception is merely um, an articulation of the Church's teaching both on the sacrament of marriage, human sexuality, and the natural law. And none of those things are up for debate. None of those things are up for sort of reforming out of existence. None of those things are up for a U-turn. That the church doesn't, it contains divine truths. And those divine truths, which can be, you know, which the church proposes as being either revealed in the natural law, in some cases, actual revelation or divine positive law, call it what you will, all of these things, there are different kinds of um, divine truths or different ways in which divine truths are articulated and, and prized by the church. But while there are distinctions, they aren't, you know, hierarchical. You know, a, a divine law is divine law. And just because we articulate one in one way or one in another doesn't mean that one has a greater or lesser um, value or staying power for that matter. And what I think is interesting, and I mean, we don't know, you know, we're, we're talking about all this. And as you said, talking about what happens on Twitter is, as a rule, stupid. But in, in this case, because it's the official organ of the Pontifical Academy, this is, you know, it's got the little authentic official account certification on it. This is an official statement of the Academy, like it or not. And it strikes me that the way that they were attempting to discuss Humanae Vitae and papal infallibility and church doctrine and the value and weight of all of that and what's open for development and reform and all that sort of stuff revealed... um, a not terribly well-developed ecclesiology and a not very good grasp on um, the way the church understands its own teaching authority. And it betrayed a a very, very positivist mentality about, well, the only thing that matters is what the Pope says as an exercise of teaching authority. 
And within that, he either says it's infallible or he doesn't. And if a pope doesn't say it's infallible, the next pope can say, well, then it's wrong and I'm changing it. And that's just not true. It's not ever been true. I mean, that would be to suggest that the church never taught or spoke infallibly before Vatican I, which is when we codified this idea of papal infallibility as, as, a, as an expression of the pontifical teaching well, like office. Definitively declared, you yeah. know, de declared it and, and clarified it, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just bizarre that this has been happening, which, of course, we reported on and we said we don't understand why who was doing this. We don't understand why they're doing it with, you know, who gave them the keys to this account. But we wrote it up because, again, it's important to, to note what the Pontifical Academy is saying in its official capacity. Um, and obviously, we had a lot of theologians lining up, including some members of the academy, lining up to say, this is not helpful. And this is not a good articulation of either what the academy does, what the academy thinks, what this event that this book was all about in the first place is. Um, and, and we don't like any of it. Would you please stop? And it got so weird to the point that we were, and you were particularly different times, desperately trying to reach out to people at the academy to see if we could interview them or get some better explanation or context. I've been really trying to interview the academy for like three weeks now, man. Um, or maybe a month, and uh, they're just not uh, not into it. Yeah, they're just not into it. But it, they did respond well enough. Uh, shortly after we we published our most recent report on all this, they responded to say, "We've deleted the tweets. You are pleased not to speak of them anymore." Right, exactly. <laughs> Which was an odd response. I thought. Oh, sorry, they didn't delete them. They said we've retired the tweets. Mm -hmm. Now, I actually, I wanted to send a follow up when they said we have retired the tweets to say, could you just unpack for me? Is this retirement? Um, uh, is that reformable? Can you develop the retirement? Is it going to come back? What does that mean? Are you abrogating? What I, wanted, what I wanted to do and what I might do, or what we might even call this podcast is I wanted to res respond with um, with uh, the all your base are belong to us meme, but uh, you are pleased not to speak anymore. You know, like I just, it was just, yeah, it was just, the, the con okay, so you raised a couple of interesting points there. One, there is a emerging um or there, there can be emerging, there's a way in which people sometimes speak about the papacy that is much more akin to the way that um, revelation is understood to work in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there's a quorum of 12 apostles who, who run the thing, and, um, uh, you know, who and there's are believed a prophet to be at the top. There's a prophet at the top, and there's a, there's a sense in which the whole thing, not, not a sense in which, an, an element of LDS theology is that... Um, the prophet can receive a private revelation, which gives him instruction about kind of what to do, or what sh what should be done, what the LDS Church should do, or what is true, or these kinds of things. And um, those private revelations don't sort of come out of a corpus of theological tradition or something like that. It's just like, well, I got a message last night, so now we believe X, Y, and C. And often they, come, they so kind of align. Thin air. Yeah, they come so to speak out of out of thin air. Um, I don't know if or that's hot air. Some sort of pun. I don't. Okay, that's what you're going for. Um, but you know, it's this notion of this sort of normatively binding ecclesial sort of corpus of theology that's that's developed out of private revelation, which is not how the church sees the pope. The Roman pontiff is not in the church's mind an oracle who sort of you know from on high says, "Well, we used to think this, and now we think that." But there is a way I think of in which people can take the notion of uh, of um, of the pope's sort of um, status as, uh, as, a, as a teacher possessing the charism of infallibility in certain circumstances as a kind of oracular vocation by which sort of the Pope receives from on high these kinds of things. And I, and I think, you know, one thing that a lot of us have learned is that there was a way um, in which, uh, this is not a new thing, this is not a sort of Francis thing that people might think this, there was a way in which people took sort of every word out of John Paul II's mouth this way or Benedict XVI's mouth this way. And I think that 
a thing that the church has been called to mature in and sort of understanding the, what papal primacy means and unpacking what papal primacy means is distinguishing between um, the vicar of Christ on earth and, and sort of the Lord's oracle. And, um, and those things are not the same. The era of, um, of, uh, of inspired sort of scriptural revelation is over, and, and the, 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 the call of the church with the charisma of the Holy Spirit, but the call of the church is to unpack the deposit of faith, not to sort of add to it by some sort of oracular... Right. Well, and, and I think it's part good. of the problem is, and I've seen this in different places, the sort of the 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 bad analogy of saying, well, the church has changed its teaching on the death penalty, and so changing its teaching on contraception would just be the same kind of thing, um, which isn't true at all. You know, that the, when we speak of development of doctrine in the church, that doesn't just mean everything's constantly up for grabs and, you know, the church is always changing what it teaches. Um, but as you say, it's an act of constantly unpacking it and also understanding what the church holds to be immutably true and how how that is reflected in the current circumstances of our world. So, for example, the death penalty, Pope Francis famously changed the wording of the catechism to say that the death penalty in, in, the, in the modern circumstances is no longer admissible. That's not to say or to suggest that the church erred in the past in, in its actual use of the death penalty, for example, in the papal states, or its recognition of the natural law authority of legitimate government to make use of the death penalty as, you know, it is a thing that can be done. It's not, um, it's not wrong in itself, but that what has happened is instead the church has said, well, look, the circumstances have changed. Obviously not to kill is better than to kill. And this is what Francis has said more or less as I've understood it, that we're now in a situation where we don't need to. So if we don't need to, we shouldn't. And that doesn't mean that even that, that notions about sort of retributive aspects of punishment and things like that are sort of eradicated, but again, just, in the contemporary context, the emphasis on the dignity of the person is a critical sort of aspect of the church's moral reasoning and also the church's evangelical witness. I want to talk right. more about that, Ed, but um, let's talk more about that, and you get the first word when we're back after this word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Aquinas Wealth Advisors powered by Morales Technology. Aquinas Wealth Advisors offers Catholics a tool to sort of check their investments, to check mutual funds, any other kind of things that they participate to understand the companies they're invested in and what those companies support. Aquinas Wealth Advisors has a tool called the Faith and Finance Score that offers anyone an ability to better understand their investments and how those investments relate to the teachings of the church. Yeah, I, this is, they are obviously a new sponsor for us, but I was watching their sort of promo video and we were talking to the to the guy who set all this up and, and, and got this company running. And I will be honest with you, I, I'm fascinated by it. I this is going to sound like a weird sentence to say, but I wish I had more money so that I had investments that I could use this tool on. Like, but do you know what I mean? Like, I, obviously I wish I had more money, but no, I mean, this, it seems like a very intuitive tool to use. And I really like the output that it shows that, you know, you, it, it offers basically, you can dump all of your investment information into this thing and it, it performs a full audit. So um, the way I, I think of it is, you know, if you go to a mechanic and say, you know, what's, how efficient is my car? And the mechanic, you know, calls you two days later and say, eh, it's, it's, it's pretty efficient. Uh, it's 99% efficient. Uh, here's a bill. You know, it does, you haven't learned anything about how your car actually runs. Whereas in this case, you get to like, look at the diagnostic computer that you plug in, you know, at least in my car where the, where the handbrake is and, you know, see the readout of everything. So you can see like, oh, well, I've got, you know, I, I've got, you know, in, I'm invested in this portfolio or that portfolio and it'll run the whole numbers and it'll come back to you and say, well, did you know that this company, this 
this asset manager, this portfolio, whatever, is investing in, uh, or is giving money to Planned Parenthood, or is investing in abortifacient uh, companies, or God forbid, pornography, or or things like that. You know, it really allows you to sort of sift the whole bloodstream of your financial portfolio. Which, I mean, again, I I wish I had more money to put in investment so I could play with this because, as you know, I'm I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to following the money, quote unquote, and and this just looks like a lot of fun. And, and it's also useful to, to so that people who do have investment portfolios can understand what the sort of um, connect moral connection between their investment portfolios and things which they don't wish to see in the world are for things you know either to divest themselves from from things which they don't um, which they don't want to be supporting or as Bishop Paprocki talked about in an interview with us a few weeks ago to get engaged in some kind of shareholder activism. Um, in either case, um, the the faith in finance score is a free tool. Anyone can go to AquinasWealth.com and use it. And um, the people at Aquinas Wealth have told us, you know, they, um, if people use the tool, um, and that doesn't generate a customer for them to help them find um, different kind of investment vehicles, that's okay with them. They just want people to feel like they can use this tool and learn something about their own investments. Well, what I really liked about it, and, and you know, talking to the guys, because we, we like to have a relationship with the people. Yeah, if you advertise to the, the podcaster, we, we like to know you. We like to know you. We like to know what they're about because, you know, obviously we have to talk about this stuff. And yeah, we're, you know, it's it's a commercial in that sense. But, um, you know, we could just sit here and read a script if we didn't care. But I, I'd like to know, you know, what's going on with the people that we're presenting on the show. And so talking to the people behind this, it, what came through to me is this for them is first, there's, there is a missionary aspect to this. It's not just about, oh, well, if they use this thing, then they're going to want to def- definitely, you know, invest their money with us or use us to find other investment vehicles. But their primary is like, we just want Catholics to have a better idea of whether or not they're ethically invested so they can go out and apply pressure in the world to make sure that investments are more ethical, to drive investment away from bad things and towards things that, you know, don't go against the church's teaching on for example, life or human dignity or things like that. And that's just just a good contribution to the world. Yeah, so if you're interested in finding out more about this, check out AquinasWealth.com for your faith and finance score today. Well, Edward, we're back, and I have promised you the first word, so let's hear it. Uh, Okay. Well, what I was going to say before we went on the break was— you know, as a sort of parenthesis to the, a close parenthesis to this thing we're talking about, the development of teaching on the death penalties. You know, Francis has changed the wording of the catechism, but it's not, you know, it's not that there's been a revelation and suddenly the death penalty is always and everywhere undiscussable and, and always wrong and always has been everything like that. Because, for example, I remember shortly after um, Pope Francis made the change, Cardinal Ranjith in Sri Lanka put out a public statement and basically said, yeah, I hear what the Pope is saying, but not here. Here we actually do need the death penalty because not just for reasons of, you know, it's it's a deterrent and, you know, that'll teach them and stuff like that. But they have a problem with organized crime bosses, drug dealers, as I understand, who were orchestrating c- campaigns of mass assassination from their jail cells. They were saying, as a, as a question of the public good, as a question of public protection, imprisonment is not sufficient for the situation we have here. And so he was making it. So it's, there is, you know, scope for dialogue within what the church has always taught, which is it is a legitimate option available to legitimate civil authority. But how is that option legitimately exercised in different circumstances, a different conversation? But we're talking about humana vitae and artificial conversa- uh, contraception. You know, we're talking about the innate link between the unitive and procreate um, aspects of the sexual act within marriage. And if you separate those, we know what happens theologically. Like that's not a, oh, I wonder what's around that corner. Like every other Christian community that has had that conversation decided, no, let's just see where that goes. 
where you end up with is the complete junking of all the of all of the church's traditional theology on marriage, human sexuality, the family, and you also get what Paul the sixth prophetically warned about in Humanae Vitae, which is you get um, the absolute objectification and abuse of women, you get a higher instance of abortion, you get higher rates of divorce, you get the dissolution of the family, like all of these things that he said, you know, one of the theologians we talked to, in fact, it was our friend Charlie Camosi, um, what he said to us is, it's not just that Humanae Vitae is true, it's that Humanae Vitae is now more obviously true than it has ever been. You know, this, is, this isn't, this is um, you know, something that Paul VI said and now you know, in 68, and now we're looking back on it 50 years later, uh, 54 years later, and saying, was that right or wrong? It's like, no, he was he was so right, it's kind of scary and also tragic. Um, and it, it, it's baffling to me that anyone would think that, you know, oh, what we need to do is revisit this because, you know, it's a bit rigid. Yeah, I think the concern, you know, I, I was really edified to hear this theologian who who had spoken with the Academy and heard that this was not sort of an initiative of the Holy Father. But I don't think the kind of conversation that's happening can be ignored either. I mean, it seems to me that a conversation about contextualizing um, uh, Humana Vitae um, can can very quickly become a a broad sort of conversation about sort of contextualization that, you know, to a certain extent comes from people who have long been critical of Veritatis Splendor, which, um, among other things, sort of emphasizes a kind of objectivity to to moral reasoning and therefore to sort of moral norms. And um, and the, the, some of the same people who are now sort of saying way out of context and without clarity, well, you know, Humana Vitae is not an infallible document, which is, again, true and totally false all at the same time, are people who have long been saying, well, you know, Veritatis Splendor sort of imposes a draconian view of moral reasoning that doesn't allow room for the preeminence of conscience and other things that in a certain way are are contrary to the long development of the t- church's magisterium articulated in Veritatis Splendor. No, it's, we can't, you can't, this is why we covered is, you know, as I said, things on Twitter are generally stupid, but, you know, when, when the official outlet of the Pontifical Academy is talking about stuff like this, it is a symptom of, of, a, of a wider thing that is going on, a wider movement. And the fact that, you know, again, so far as we can see, this isn't something that the Pope has bid on up till now, doesn't mean the conversation isn't happening. It doesn't mean the conversation isn't happening in Rome, doesn't mean the conversation isn't happening around the Pope. And to that extent, it is very much a live issue, and it, it bears close watching. And when you when you have conversations like this that sort of go on under hatches, you know, behind an arras, so to speak, that can lead to, um, it can lead to bad results. But if the conversation is had in the open or brought into the open, brought into the light, so to speak, um, and, and had fully in the light of day, suddenly people seem to, you know, change their way of thinking and they, they start retiring tweets and saying, please not to speak. <laughs> All your base are belong to us. Um, I'm curious whether the, um, Pontifical Academy deleted its official statements about this because there was becoming media attention to it because well, the, and, social... and the important point you clarify there. It's not just that they said tweets. You sent them a request. You know, we were writing this thing and talking to theologians. And you sent them a request for an interview to clarify about these tweets. Yeah. But instead of responding directly to you, they then tweeted this page long statement that was a response to your questions. Yeah, but they just fine. posted on Twitter. Yeah, which, is, which is fine. I mean, they're fine with me. No, I mean, it's I fine. But I'm saying they, that that's the extent to which this was not just, you know, some some uh, employee of the academy who'd had a few drinks after work and had the keys to the account. Like they were they were writing page long. They were like, this is statements. the way we're going to do it. That's right. This was not this is not an intern sort of saying his own things. Um, 
Uh, in fact, this seems to be the kind of communications director for the for the Pontifical Academy. So what I wonder about, and it's just kind of my own curiosity about inside baseball, it's not immediately germane to these big questions, is whether this guy sort of whether when there became media interest in this, there was sort of uh, dissension within the Pontifical Academy where the communications director faced some criticism from his bosses for raising these things out or whether there was a sort of broader sense within the Pontifical Academy that we had been articulating some things and clearly there's much more pushback than we had thought and that's a kind of instructive trial balloon. I, I, I don't know, but again, that's to my mind worth worth watching as well. What the direction is for this, again, sort of pontifical think tank, which was created for the express purpose of like affirming and promoting the uh, the church's magisterium with regard to um, the gift of the transmission of life. Yeah, it's... Yeah. All right. And having spoken about that, and you've spoken about it well, eloquently, articulately, and cogently, having done so, I have a little treat for you, which is that I'm going to ask you to do something on the podcast that you haven't done in quite some time, but that I know is important to you. Because it seems to me, Ed, that today on August the 12th, um, we're recording this podcast on Friday, we have gotten listeners to this show, people who get their news principally from this show, have gotten basically no news or information about the current season of baseball. So I thought you might just want to, if you want to talk about baseball for a few minutes, which is something you like to do, I want to give you the floor. That's kind of you. I You remember you used to make those big rants about the Houston Rastros or whatever? Uh, I did, the, the cheating dirtbag Houston Astros, uh, who should still get back their rings. Um, What's happening? I, so both, so the New York Yankees and the New York Mets are both in first place. Could we have a, could like we have a Subway World reader Series? And, pillar reader and close personal friend of mine <laughs> uh, is having a phenomenal season. I in, told my brother-in-law, because we there's a pillar listener who is a baseball player and pillar reader who's a baseball player, and he and I have been texting a little bit lately, and I told my brother-in-law that I'm becoming friends with a baseball player, and he is... Uh, I, he, he's, I think he's going to steal my phone from me just so he can text to the baseball guy, too. But we, it's very cool that we have a listener who's a baseball player. But anywho, go ahead. Uh, I have, with the exception of uh, keeping an eye on on our friend's uh, starts and, and turns on the mound, I, I've really only been very, at a distance, hate-following what's going on in the majors this season. I've, I've so had it with the rule changes. I've so had it with the behavior of the commissioner. Uh, I've so had it with the ownership and management of the Cubs. I, I honestly I can't get excited for any major league baseball this season. I it was the quote unquote field of dreams game um, last night where where the Cubs were playing and you know they go to they go to this mock up of the film set in an Iowa cornfield and pretend like major league baseball isn't a vicious vampire squid relentlessly thrusting its blood funnel into anything that smells even remotely of money. Um, and, and to try and shuck it up like a classic baseball movies and say, oh, yeah, no, baseball is really all about community and family and, you know, our, our shared, you know, our shared societal endeavors that the hell it is for these people. You know, I can't I just can't abide them. I, I, I'm done with them, J.D. I'll be honest with you. I've gone to a lot of baseball games this year, but they've all been minor league games so far as it's ever possible for me. They've been unaffiliated minor league games. I, I love the sport of baseball, but I really am done with the majors i i just unless something dramatic happens i just don't see a way back i hope baseball will have a well baseball it seems to me needs if there are a lot of disaffected fans and people who are kind of walking away from their even their family's long-standing practice on the game it seems to me that what baseball might need is a sort of synod on synodality within the context uh, of the game how that would be nice i have long of, said if i could propose i mean i have the usual fans laundry list of things I would do if I was the commissioner of baseball for a day. 
Um, and I have, I have my sort of big three reforms and they, they kind of, you know, come and go, but I've come around to the number one reform I would make to the game of baseball in the major leagues. If I, if I was the baseball commissioners, I would turn over the rules of the game to Cooperstown. Yeah, that's cool. Cause this is what they've done in other sports. Like in cricket, um, there is the international cricket council, the ICC, which is the sort of the MLB of international cricket, but they don't have control over the rules of the game. That's under the control of the Marlowe Cricket Club, the MCC, which is sort of, you know, the first club, organizing club of the game in London. And I would do the same thing with Cooperstown. I just say, you know what? We're going to do no more of this pitch clock nonsense, mound visits, um, you know, minimum batters faced for relief pitchers, uh, designated hitter, all of this stuff. No, it's not for the commission. These should not be commercial decisions. This touches the soul of the game. Turn it all over to Cooperstown and say the Baseball Hall of Fame is the guardian of the rules of baseball. And Major League Baseball is exactly that, a business. It is it is a company. And I, I would be very happy with that. I, I don't think we need a synod on baseball, J.D., although I would happily participate in one. What we need is a Pope Francis. We need a new commissioner who has utter um, utter disregard <laughs> for uh, the, the sort of way in which he will be perceived and comes in with a clear mandate of, the there's there's it's something's rotten in in my immediate sort of administrative circle and it needs clearing out and we need reform and people need to go on trial and some people need to go to jail and money is the root of all evil and you know we need a pope francis commissioner of baseball and i would i would strongly be in favor of that hmm. okay well thank i wasn't you for expecting that. to talk about that so that was i just I, wanted to give you the opportunity and uh we're gonna have to get going here in just a minute because you have some obligations today i know but uh, Ed, we talked about academies today, so I thought that since we were talking about academies and it's already mid-August, we are nearly at the time when people return to their academies for another semester of school, that we might play just a little bit of um, back-to-school yes or no, if you are interested in doing so, Ed. Oh, absolutely. Okay. This is way better than the freestyle rap battle I imagined we were going to have to have. Excellent. <laughs> I'm glad that we're not doing that. Okay, um, Ed... I'm just going to say some things that exist in modern schools, and um, you are going to uh, just give me a yes or no on them. You understand the rules of yes or no, since it's a game that you made up, do you not? Yes, yes. Okay, great. Um, again, it's just, you just say yes or no, there's no qualifying or anything like that. There's just yes or there's um, no. Uh, understand? Yes. Okay, and since you went to um, school in England... I have added in a few, um, few English, uh, a few English um, things there for you, if if that's all right with you. Uh, yes. But if you're ready to play, then uh, then we'll do it. Yes. Okay. Great. You just seem very very enthusiastic about this. Yes. <laughs> you see how I can limit right. myself to just yes or no? I can. There's one. There's just one more that I want to look up. So that's why I was kind of talking slow because I was just oh, I sort of basically trying to. Da, 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 to the to the questions, I suppose. Okay. Um, classroom instruction involving PowerPoint. No. All right. Library books kept on reserve. No. I agree. Correct answer. You're absolutely right. Library books. Uh, acquire, the acquisition of library books should be a survival of the fittest kind of. It a is situation. law of the jungle. If you if you aren't willing to get there first, tompi. School yearbooks. Yes. Really? I I mean, I don't have any. 
my 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 graduating class from secondary school produced two yearbooks, an official one and and an unofficial one, um, in which we were encouraged to you know submit compromising photos of ourselves and make you know unfiltered statements and things like that. I don't have either of them. I didn't spend money on either of them. But then again, I've seen other people's yearbooks. Um, my father's yearbooks, my grandfather's yearbooks, my uh, yearbooks belonging to my uncles, for example. And it is an interesting um, window into the social norms of a bygone era. So I, I would say for myself, no, but I understand as historical artifacts for later generations, I can understand their appeal. Okay. This is the school attended by uh, the late Prince Philip of, I don't know, whatever, Han Hanover. What was it? What is Prince Philip the Prince of? Uh, well, I mean, in theory, the Duke of Edinburgh. Of Greece. Yeah, okay. He was Prince the Duke Philip of Edinburgh. He renounced Prince his Philip princely of, of titles. Greece and Denmark, the Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, Philip Mountbatten, if you don't prefer to stand on ceremony, the Gordonston School out of Scotland. Oh, Gordonston? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, if you watch The Crown, which is a documentary about your people, that's like a, a pretty kind of, it's like a military-esque um, boarding school in Scotland, is it not? I, I wouldn't describe it as military-esque. It's, it's what we call a, a cold water establishment. Um Puts a, puts a lot of emphasis on on learning to make do. Fair enough. Class rings. No. Correct. You're absolutely right about that. School cafeteria tater tots. Uh, yes. Okay, good. Uh, I've good never answer. had one, but I'm in favor of tater tots. So. Oh, you've never had one. Interesting. And I don't know what this is, but it's something that I've read about periodically in English novels. The concept of a head boy. Uh, yes. There what is that? Hierarchy. Uh, well, so obviously um, in school you will have you have to you have to have discipline and you have to have hierarchy, because if you don't have hierarchy and discipline, you you can't break the spirit of the children to then reform them uh, in a way that you know embodies the school ethos. And you can't have um it's not possible for teachers anymore, although it certainly used to be. Um, you you have a, a strata of the top year, so seniors, if you prefer, who are basically co-opted into a sort of uh, petty officer class over the rest of the school and are charged with enforcing discipline on, on the students, and they're called prefects. And so you will have prefects, and you will have senior prefects, and then you will have one or two deputy head boys, and you have one head boy. And he's sort of the... The, head cadet or the senior, the senior uh, enlisted man, so to speak. Yes, he's he's the company man, but I mean, it's also he's also functions effectively as uh, a, a valedictorian named a year ahead. Um, he's, Does he get a know, scholarship in exchange for this role no, of service that he performs? No, 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 no. Um, well, I mean, some places might, but no, it, it's not. One is not synonymous with the role, and uh, I mean, I was never a prefect. I I was um, I, I was a known quantity. To the to the teachers, it never it never occurred. I was known to the police, as it were, and the idea of investing me with authority over the students they realized would would quickly go into would quickly lead to anarchy. And uh, but head so boy is effectively class president or student council president. Yes, only it's an appointment; it's not an election. It's and not, it matters. It's, yeah, it's not popular acclaim. It is the administration's pick. All right, Ed. Um, group projects. No, no. Yeah, agreed. Ed, school before Labor Day. Beginning school uh, before Labor Day. Uh, this is, oh, no, 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 no. Right. Academia in August is iniquitous. I agree. Saved by the bell. Yes. Good. 
Yes. 90210. These are just shows about high school. Uh, I, I have never actually seen an episode of 90210. I, I mean, it was on while we were children, obviously. It was, it, it's earlier seasons were on while I still but lived in the United States. For us. That's what I was say. When it was on and when I lived in the States, the center of that Venn diagram, yeah. it would have been inappropriate viewing for me at my age. And so yeah. I've never actually seen it. I am aware that there's a woman called Shannon Doherty and that her eyes are asymmetrical. I am aware that there is a man named Luke Perry who was something of a, a proto Freddie Prince Jr. figure. Uh, but that's really all I know about it. I know that they had, I remember seeing pictures of the character because, you know, it was, despite it being not age appropriate for, for my class when, when I lived in the States and it was on, um, the, the sort of 90210 thing was still a culture. So it made it onto lunchboxes and the sort of notebooks and stuff that you would, that people would, you know, the kids take to school. And so I was aware that there was a character called Brandon who had earrings. And I remember being um, personally repulsed at the idea of a boy wearing earrings. Um, <laughs> So, so on the strength of that, no. Quidditch. No. Just, I'm just asking, man. No. You... Rugby. I'm just naming yes. made-up sports now. Uh, I played rugby. I know. I went to a rugby school. I know. Schools in the UK, English schools, English public schools, I should qualify. Um, which are, means private school. Which does mean private school. Um, means uh, you, you either go to a rugby school or you go to a football school. You, mm -hmm. you, there's no such thing as a school that plays both sports, and I, I went to a rugby school, and we, we rightly looked down on on the on the yobbish, foppish hooligans of, uh, of of football schools. Climbing the rope in gym class. Yes. Oh, you could do that. I at different times in my life, I've been able to climb a rope. I've always thought that the 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 real life lesson of climbing the rope is not so much the physical strength or fitness required to get to the top of the rope. But the mental um, reserves one needs when arriving at the top of the rope and looking down and realizing you now have to get down. That's right. That's the real life lesson. Ed, uh, Dead Poets Society. No. Thanks be to God. Well, well answered. Well answered. Well answered. All right, Edward. Well, you have done very well at this uh, this round of Back to School, Yes or No. You are off uh, next week. It is time for your summer vacation, which means that we might take next week off from the Pillar Podcast. And if we do, we'll be back in two weeks. Um, and if we don't, we'll see you next week. Uh, and uh, we will have many things on our horizon to keep you informed about. Ed, final thoughts? No, actually. I, I'm ready for vacation. It's been a Good. long year. I, I could use a week off. We'll see how that goes. This week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Aquinas Wealth Advisors, powered by Morales Technology. Visit us at AquinasWealth.com or call 833-730-3700 to align your faith and finance with Aquinas Wealth Advisors. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and GD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my co-founder and Pillar Editor, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we'll be back sometime. Sometime.